Thank you for downloading and listening to This Pathological Life. If you're interested in continuing the story, we have a second series called This Medical Life. Please download it and subscribe now. Dr. Travis Brown, why do we need a podcast called This Pathological Life? Every disease has its own story to tell. So we're going to tell them. Dr. Travis Brown, you know that I'm a sucker for a good puzzle. And in this episode, we have a genetic puzzle, don't we? We do. So this is about MEN one, two, three, four, depending on you know how far you go with it. Uh, it's uh, multiple endocrine neoplasia. So we've called this the genetic puzzle. And this is a testament in history to the power of observation. Uh, doctors who right at the time in history, recognize something's wrong, recognize a pattern of illness in a patient, but doesn't quite know the, have the technology to say what's wrong with it or the, the knowledge. Mm. And, and so what it is, is there's a common saying in, in medicine that, you know, common things occur commonly. Uh, you know, when you hear hoofbeats, think of horses, not zebras, or, you know, even further, not unicorns. Mm-hmm. And, and so... The problem is, the challenge is in medicine, sometimes it is a zebra coming along or a unicorn. And how do we manage this? And, and this is what we find is that, you know, MEN is actually quite a hard disease process to get your mind around. The, the reason that is because the pattern of presentation is so varied. The disease illness itself is so varied so there's not a you know really simple way to be able to identify it, and that's why sort of delay in diagnosis takes a long time, and the patients probably have delayed in in treatment mm. uh, because of that. But that's not because of anyone's you know misunderstanding. It's just because it's a hard disease to diagnose. And if we look in the the history, we we go back to you know 1903, and there's a few scattered reports of you know multiple adenomas of endocrine glands in men, and the next 50 years, you see these reports crop up of just these case reports written about unusual tumours in patients. Now, nothing specific. It's when we get to 1954 that we come across a US physician by the name of Dr. Paul Wormer. And he wrote an article called Genetic Aspects of Adenomatosis of Endocrine Glands. And he wrote this in the American Journal of Medicine. And what he wrote is he came across a family There was a father and four daughters who were affected with this illness. Now, there were five other children that were unaffected. Now, what he found is these patients had tumors in the anterior pituitary, parathyroid gland, and the pancreas. Now, the pattern, he was clearly took a a very thorough history and then started to investigate and say, this is really unusual to get in this family. And he ended up saying, this is an autosomal dominant uh, disorder, with most of the the patients actually showing some sort of symptoms or what we say a high degree of penetrance, so it's actually expressing the disease. And the patients also had this odd finding of peptic ulcers. Uh, now, he believed the peptic ulcers were related to different genes, so somewhat unrelated. But nine years later, he writes another article in, in 1963 and it's called endocrine adenomatosis and peptic ulcer in a large kindred. And what he had done was he was able to trace five generations 
even going to the, through to their Italian heritage. He did a family tree, and he had 53 people that he had traced through that. 20 of the relatives had this endocrine adenomatosis, and 19 of 20 of them had peptic ulcers. And so what he found was tumours in the anterior pituitary, the pancreas, and the parathyroid. There are also some other tumours that he came across, of you know, adenomas in the thyroid or lipomas, so fatty tumours. And this other one that just came up and he wrote about, it's called Zollinger-Ellison syndrome. Now, we'll come back to that. But what we're looking at is once he reported it, then other people started to observe and say, oh, I've got this. It's a rare condition, but with rare conditions and someone, someone has written about, then other people start to notice, oh, this is unusual over here in this family as well. And so that takes us from Dr. Paul Wormer mm -hmm. to 1955, back again, and we have two surgeons, Zollinger and Ellison syndrome. Now, these two surgeons wrote an article about two female patients that had a rare digestive disorder where their body produced too much acid and they started getting weird ulcers in weird places in their stomach. Now, it's a surgical article, and they talk about how to bypass the surgery. And then with this, they go to the point of saying, unfortunately, one of the women ended up dying eventually, and she had a pancreatic tumour, an islet cell tumour. And then the second lady, she didn't die of, of the disease that they know of, but they didn't find any cause for it. This is amazing. They say that we shouldn't be exploring space because we still haven't <laughs> finished exploring the ocean. We haven't even finished with the human well, body. Yet. Exactly. And here's the thing. They knew something was odd about this. How does, it how does someone produce too much acid and that it starts causing them pathology? And so they wrote about it. Now, this has been analysed because they created a surgical technique that was, wasn't known at the time, and then surgeons have looked at that and refined it. And so, but that is known as Zollinger-Ellison syndrome, when the, when the body produces too much acid and causing problems for itself. And then we have the third person, in, uh, his name is Dr. John Sippel, who wrote a report of a patient who was 33 years old. Now, he wrote this in 1961, and these have pheochromocytomas. Now, these are tumours, relative benign tumours, so to speak, in the adrenal gland. But he also noted that this patient who was 33, who ended up dying, unfortunately, also had a medullary thyroid carcinoma tumour. So this patient, who ended up dying, unfortunately, had uh, pheochromocytomas bilateral in the adrenal gland, which is a benign tumour, but it doesn't necessarily behave benign because the things that secrete make the body have really high hypertension, which causes other problems. And so then you, this patient also had a thyroid cancer, which they initially diagnosed as follicular, but that year they found a new entity and they called it medullary thyroid carcinoma. And so this patient was found to have this unusual disorder. So when you've got tumours in both adrenal glands and then a malignant tumour in the thyroid, it clicks in and it said, there is something unusual about this. As I stood at the autopsy table, I knew I was looking at something special, although I did not understand it. I doubted very much that it was a chance occurrence. 
And he was right. So when you look at pheochromocytoma, this, this tumor occurs about two to eight per million. So it's a rare tumor, and then to be in both sides. So again, symptoms with this, you can get hypertension, headache, sweating, palpitations, anxiety. It's because of what the actual tumor is secreting. And then you've got medullary thyroid carcinoma, which only about 3 or 4% of thyroid cancers are medullary. 70% of them are sporadic, so people could just get them. But 20%, we know now, are familial. Mm. And so the problem with the familial one is it tends to be a younger patient and it tends to be more aggressive. Mm. So when he did a literature search, he found 537 of these uh, pheochromocytomas, but he only found five that also had a medullary or a thyroid cancer association. So he's put this together all in 1961, and he said, this is unusual. There's something, we call it Sipple syndrome now. And so he was able to calculate that the incidence of the thyroid and adrenal gland tumors was out of the order about 15 to 40 times, mm. meaning that this was not just a random occurrence, particularly when you go back and start looking at the literature. And so he then, by 1968, had found 41 other cases and 186 kindred people associated with that. And so when you start to put this all together, you have the genetic puzzle you have Dr. Paul Wormer from 1954-1963. He has a family, a father and four daughters, ends up being five generations and 20 people affected. The incidence uh, we'll discuss a little bit later, but we now know it's called the MEN1 gene. We call it MENIN. It's a tumor suppressor gene, and you get this uh, loss of, of regulated growth. It's unregulated growth. And this has caused, you know, 95 to 100% of people get primary hyperparathyroidism. 82% uh, have a pancreatic endocrine, endocrine tumor, and 60% have a pituitary adenoma. And so, again, looking at that, it's autosomal dominant with a high penetrance, meaning those who have it will show some symptoms or some uh, disease that comes through. Mm. But we also know that 20% of patients with MEN1 will have zollinger ellison syndrome. And so that can be a clue that if someone's getting lots of weird ulcers, we need to rule out MEN1. And that takes us back to, to Dr. Sippel, 1961, MEN2. We have that as a, a, the RET gene on chromosome 10, and that's a proto gene, and it's a cell signaling pathway. And there's, look, there's four, four different variants of MEN2. There, there is MEN2A, uh, and you have four variants. One's a skin variant, uh, one's a Hirschsprung disease. Again, it's not really important to go depth mm. into this part, uh, but the, the interesting part is the case that Dr. John Sippel is describing uh, in 1961 is patients who have pheochromocytoma as well as medullary thyroid carcinoma. So the case that he was reporting, we now know, would be MEN2B. Well, you certainly have laid a puzzle out on the table. I wanted us to ground this now, not in the abstract, but let's talk to someone who is personally linked through his family uh, to this MEN. And that's Dr. Mark Lewis, who will join us from America in just a moment. <music> 
Dr. Mark A. Lewis received his medical degree, completed his internal medicine residency, and served as chief resident at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. After completing a hematology-oncology fellowship at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, where he served as chief fellow, he returned to Houston to work at the MD Anderson Cancer Center for four years with a dual appointment in general and gastrointestinal medical oncology before assuming the directorship of gastrointestinal oncology at Intermountain Healthcare in 2016. He serves on the board of directors of the Neuroendocrine Tumor Research Foundation as vice president of American Multiple Endocrine Neoplasia Support and as co-chair of the Communications Committee for the North American Neuroendocrine Tumor Society. Mark, welcome to This Pathological Life. Oh, thank you so much. It's a true honor to be on your podcast. And it's also a true challenge for me with all the names you medical people have <laughs> and titles. I think my bio betrays my, my slight bias and affinity uh, for uh, neuroendocrine tumors, as we'll discuss. I, I'm sure we will. In fact, I, I've done the main bits, but are there some little bits of color from your past that you'd like to fill us in with, some other aspects of your story that might be useful for our, our listeners to be aware of? Certainly. And in fact, it's going to be quite relevant when we talk about how disease surfaced in my family. So I'm, I'm Scottish by birth. I was born in Edinburgh and moved to Texas uh, at a young age, uh, which was a bit of culture shock, if I'm honest. Um, but actually, that, that process was was crucial um, to finding in my own family a neuroendocrine tumor syndrome. And, you know, there's a, there's a term in medicine, right? Incidentaloma, finding something almost by accident or by providence, depending on your perspective. And that's exactly what happened in, in my family. We actually like to dig a little deeper into your yeah. uh, familial background in, in harmony with the theme uh, that we're exploring in this episode of multiple endocrine neoplasia. Tell us about the personal experience, the familial experience with this. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm an open book. I'm happy to talk about my kindred, as it were. So I don't know what the rules are, to be honest with you, regarding immigration to Australia. But when you immigrate to the United States, you have to get a chest x-ray to essentially exclude tuberculosis. You know, long before COVID, I want to make sure that you weren't bringing in a respiratory contagion. And so my father, who at the time was 42 years old and seemingly in fair health, as we can delve into, um, had his x-ray, which again is essentially a form of screening. And we got this very cold clinical uh, call from the embassy saying, well, good news, bad news. Good news is no signs of tuberculosis. But the bad news is there's something almost entirely pacifying your right lung. And then they hung up. That was, that was the extent of it. <laughs> Um, and it's funny, as an oncologist, one of the things that we work on, the art of medicine is, is breaking bad news. And I've often cited to patients that's sort of the example par excellence of how not to tell somebody. Yes. And, uh, and, and the other thing is, you know, moving from the UK to the US, we then had to engage with American healthcare, which is extremely different and largely privatized. So within a you know, short amount of time after arriving in the States, my dad is having his entire right lung removed. We're putting 30,000 American dollars on credit cards, you know, money that we don't have. Um, and, you know, from then on, you know, he was actually never cured of, of this, of this illness. And frankly, he, he went to his grave, not realizing that this was the manifestation of multiple endocrine neoplasia type one. It was always described as, you know, pure bad luck. Um, mm. At one point it was described to him rather um, incorrectly as a, as an atypical form of lung cancer. 
which caused him to sort of reflect on all the secondhand smoke exposure he might have had throughout his life and wonder if you know, he had somehow brought this upon himself. Um, in fact, what it was, was a thymic <clears throat> neuroendocrine tumor, uh, which is one actually of the less known manifestations of MEN1, as we can, as we can discuss. Um, and that grew in his, in his mediastinum, in the, in the anterior part of his chest. I've actually often described it too as maddeningly vestigial. That's an organ that you don't really need um, past, you know, say your early adulthood, and, and yet it grew and, and ultimately killed him. So that, that surgery, the, the pneumonectomy that removed his right lung, first of all, it was a good thing. He was in otherwise good health because he survived on just one lung for seven years. He called it the slow puffing process of proving its redundancy, which I thought was a lovely turn of phrase. But, um, but the, the surgery didn't entirely remove the tumor because it was essentially stuck or adhered to um, the great vessels behind his uh, breastbone. So he got radiation therapy to that. And this was the late 80s and radiation was still fairly crude. And um, the radiation did collateral damage, um, particularly to his esophagus, also made it difficult for him to speak. And he was a, he was a professor, among other things. He was a professor of theology. And so lecturing became more difficult. And then ultimately, the, the real tragedy there was it was unsuccessful um, at eradicating that tumor, which then metastasized to his bones quite, quite painfully. So I saw my, my teetotal father, who'd never had an intoxicant in his life, you know, require morphine to control bone pain. So I know that sounds like an, an experience that would uh, drive me away from oncology, but um, you know, ultimately I, I, found, I found the science really interesting and I know it sounds cold and clinical. Uh, and then the art of oncology too, my father's oncologist was absolutely wonderful, took great compassionate care of him um, and then allowed me to work in his, in his practice. And so I grew up in the summertime, my summer job was uh, essentially starting as a medical assistant uh, in an oncology clinic and shadowing this doctor. And it's funny because this, this physician, he didn't have all the clues he needed to recognize me and one in my dad. And so that was left to me when I became an oncologist. It all clicked and I realized that's what was going on in my family. I know Travis is dying to get to the microphone, but I need to ask one more question. Before that fateful x-ray, were there any sim other symptoms that yes. might have alerted everyone to the, this presence? Yes, thank you. And actually, it's so crucial we bring this up. So the most penetrant, the most common feature of MEN1 is overactivation of your parathyroid glands, which, of course, are intimately involved in calcium metabolism and are supposed to very tightly calibrate the rate at which calcium sort of leaches out of your bones into your bloodstream. And so if that process goes even a little bit too fast, um, you end up, of course, getting osteoporosis, so low bone density, but high blood calcium. And your question is so well posed because in hindsight, and I got a lot of this from my mother posthumously, my father had suffered essentially symptoms of hypercalcemia from probably late adolescence. He was a, a student at the um, University of St. Andrews and had horrible problems with abdominal pain that in hindsight, I think were probably an ileus or something like it um, caused by the high calcium. And that was frankly the crucial clue because when I was diagnosed with high calcium at age 30, I, I knew enough at that point, I was pretty far into my medical training. I said, well, there's only a couple conditions actually they're going to give you consecutive uh, generations with high calcium. One of them is entirely benign, uh, familial hypocalciuric hypercalcemia. And the other main one is, is MEN1. And that's actually, that was my eureka moment. I said, oh my goodness, you know, it wasn't just bad luck that befell my father. And as it happens to really fill in the family tree, my paternal grandfather, also a, uh, a minister, had uh, been uh, kind of a pivotal figure in uh, the Northern Ireland peace process 
and um and, and he was preaching from the pulpit and, and he um he just became unable to speak and it was a, a tumor in his upper chest and I, I have to wonder in hindsight i don't have details i think that was probably a thymic neoplasm as well right uh, an amazing story there um can i ask when you did find out that moment how did you feel because then you realized that it's sort of the, the puzzle all came together about your father and then about yourself yeah. how, did, how did that how did that make you feel you know, I've often described as a patient physician having a bicameral mind. At that moment, it was really the divide between my head and my heart. I was, I guess, somewhat smug that I'd figured out the puzzle, but then, um, <laughs> but then, but then also, you know, realized, wow, this has pretty profound implications for my life and career. And then finally, when I really reflected on it, you know, I sort of um, just was sad that I couldn't go back and tell my my dad and my granddad, you know, this is what was wrong with them because, you know. It, there's been so much moralization and stigma around cancer. There still is, but certainly, you know, in the 1960s and onward, you know, there was, it was almost the implication that you must, must have done something wrong. And um, both those men, you know, they, um, I think, suffered a, an unnecessary amount of guilt uh, and took that to their grave. And that, that ultimately was the most sort of, you know, um, sobering reflection I had. But, but frankly, I also am a huge believer that knowledge is power. Um, I was just starting my my subspecialization in oncology when this all came to be, and yeah, you know, I, I wondered, is this going to you know derail my 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 training and my career? So I went to my my fellowship director and uh, immediately confided in him. He said, well, this this shouldn't actually uh, prevent you from working, and in fact, you know, one of the ways our our program worked is you were given time to do dedicated research and and very uh, kindly and, and selfishly for me, I was allowed to do all my research during fellowship on ME and one. So. Um, it was uh, ultimately sort of providential timing. Mm. Uh, I kind of feel like I was in the right place at the right time. But um, again, for the generations before me, uh, uh, too little, too late. Well, I, I just pick you up. You said selfishly for me, you could do that. But this is one of the rare times when that selfishness actually has a, a greater good. Oh, that's very kind of you to say. I mean, it was um, it was fascinating. I'll tell you very briefly, you know, I, I immediately found, of course, I had overactive parathyroid glands and had those taken care of. And then we'll talk about the mnemonics for ME one, but one of the other areas you worry about, of course, is the pancreas. And so I had my pancreas examined with endoscopic ultrasound, and then I was given three different surgical opinions. And, and the, the spectrum here is very broad. One, observation. Two, the Whipple surgery. And three, and least appealingly, total pancreatectomy. And I said, well, gosh, you know, how do we know what to do? And they said, well, you know, it's, it's, it's your choice, and, you know, it's kind of what you want to do. And I said, well, there's got to be more evidence here to guide us. And so my research project was I looked at all of the MEN1 patients that have ever undergone pancreatic surgery at Mayo Clinic, which was a lot. And then I was able to work backwards and see sort of the, the key predictors for who did well with surgery, you know, what were the real sort of temporal indications for needing operations like those. Uh, and that really helped me sort of then guide my own care. So thank you for saying that. It was a, definitely a, uh, an opportunity where I hope I benefited others, but I know it helped me manage my own body. So the, the challenge with a cancer diagnosis initially is one that uh, people get, they get the sort of the shock of it all, and then, okay, how do we go from here? The challenge yes. with MEN, though, is it's almost chronic disease cancer. Yes. And it's, yes. it's I'm trying to work out how that actually manifests as a patient and then as a doctor. It's sort of one of those ones, how do you, how do you manage that, that condition? Yes. Oh, gosh, that's so well said. I know you're recording me now, but you must have had a microphone on me earlier today because I, I use that exact phrasing, that, that paradigm of 
um, a tumor syndrome as a chronic illness with one of my patients who was really struggling because, well, well, two things that you said there. Number one, when people first come to me, they experience what's called the, what I call the tinnitus of terror. You, you say the word cancer and that's all they hear in the first consultation. Mm-hmm. So you often have to revisit, you know, facts and prognoses and, and later visits. But the second thing is almost everybody will ask me, you know, can I be cured? And the truth of the matter is, unless CRISPR or some other gene editing platform comes along, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be cured in my lifetime. And that's not woes me. It's, it's my reality and it actually informs my practice on a daily basis. But I tell my patients, you know, 85% of my patients, and this is outside of just MEN, when they come to me as a medical oncologist, you know, I'm sort of the end of a, a diagnostic sequence by which they've been found to have metastatic or incurable disease. And so that is the case for the majority of the people that I care for. And so I, I have to kind of have them toggle their mindset pretty early on, actually, mm. from, you know, if, if a miracle happens, and I've seen miracles happen in my career, I know I didn't bring them about by definition. Um, that's wonderful. But let's, you know, let's hope for the best and, and plan a little bit more realistically that this is something you're going to have for the rest of your life. And, and um, you know, everybody deals with that differently. Uh, I will say, and, and you know this, um, in the modern oncology era, we, we are developing therapies that... Um, can cure diseases that we previously thought we we couldn't uh, render into remission. But this syndrome, at least as we're talking today in 2021, is, is not one of them. Then as you're going through your research and you're finding out more and more about this, I imagine you're in two minds as a physician as well as a, as a sort of a patient investigating yeah. these things. How yeah. did you feel it actually changed your career at that point in time? Yeah, um, I, well, I think it, I call it hard-won empathy. Um, it's made me see um, specifically our trials, but also our standard of care treatments through a slightly different lens. Um, And I think I'm pretty attuned now to what endpoints matter to patients. Um, You know, we have a lot of surrogates that we have allowed to sort of slip into our work that might seem acceptable to us as clinicians, but at the end of the day really are not that meaningful uh, and sometimes are counterproductive for, for patients. And so the, the big two, of course, are you know, overall survival and then quality of life during that longevity. And almost everything else is either a good or a poor surrogate for that. And perhaps the ultimate example in oncology is response rate. You know, we, in our, our trials, you know, we very rigorously measure lesions on scans and you know, we're thrilled if we see, you know, see 30% reduction in cross-sectional area. But, you know, I can't tell you how many times in practice I've, I've walked into a room and, you know, this was pre-COVID. I had a um, mask off. I don't have a poker face. I'm smiling because I know I'm going to give the patient good news. And sometimes the patients will be like, well, what, what are you so happy about? I said, oh, you know, your tumors are better on scan. And they're like, well, I don't feel any better. And um, that kind of disconnect between, you know, what we think is such a great success, but, but frankly, is a bit of a period victory for the patient, especially if they incur toxicity in the process. Um, that is what I think I'm pretty... Uh, uh, aware of now. And then uh, along that same line, this phrase manageable toxicity has slipped into our lingo. Particularly, you hear it at conferences. You know, someone will uh, be talking about a new drug, and obviously they're incentivized to tell you all the good stuff. And then they'll throw up some slide with a, you know, sort of laundry list of horrific toxicities. And, you know, they'll call it, call it manageable. And, um, you know, that's just not the right word. Um, it, it, it might be something that someone can survive, but I think manageable is sophistry. I think it's used to sell the benefit of drugs while sort of throwing a, a veil over the adverse effects. 
Now, there's, there's a part that you've experienced here. You've experienced it as a son, experienced it as a patient, and now as a father. Can, we, yeah. can I ask you how that makes you feel? How does that, how does that impact uh, you? Because, again, uh, you know, when children get in the mix, emotions just get really yeah. flipped yeah. around. How, does, yeah. how have you managed that with, with your children uh, yeah. sort of moving, moving forward? Yeah, absolutely. Happy to talk about that as well. So again, I'm a perfect example of autosomal dominant inheritance. So the classic pattern here is that there's a 50-50 chance you're going to transmit the disorder to any one of your children. So literally you're flipping a coin and I have two kids, a daughter who doesn't have it and a son who does. And um, it's interesting. We actually found out I had Emmy and Warren between their births. And my wife and I, my wife's a pediatrician, you know, we're given the option of uh, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis uh, before we conceived our son. So, you know, in vitro fertilization plus um, testing of embryos to see if they are quote unquote defective or not, and then only implanting the ones that, that aren't deemed defective. Um, for a host of reasons, we opted not to do that. Um, one of which was it almost prompted an existential crisis for me in the sense that if my parents had done that, I wouldn't be here, at least not as I know myself. And so I'm not saying PGD is, um, is, is wrong. I think it actually it probably does fit some parents, especially with much more morbid um, and fatal disorders than mine. One of the nice things to point out about the syndrome is the reason it propagates is most of us survive to our you know, childbearing years, if you will. Um, and we have reproductive potential. And then, you know, plus and minus theirs, and you're going to transmit it to your children, 50-50 chance of each. So um, honestly, my son motivates me. I'm speaking to you right now from his bedroom. Um, yes. And, uh, and um, he, you know, his health, obviously, I, I, it almost sounds disingenuous to say, but I'm more invested in his health than, than I am in my own. I think mm -hmm. most parents would say that, you know, yep. you would make sacrifices for um, your kids. And, um, and I'm, I'm very motivated to, to see the field move forward and contribute in some tiny way to him having better health. I, I, I mentioned earlier the pancreas. I did end up having the Whipple surgery in 2017. So he watched me go through that at an age where he'll remember it. Uh, but I've told him often, I was like, listen, one of the weird things about our condition is, and I don't use this phrase with him, but there's no genotype phenotype correlation, meaning that one person's experience with exactly the same mutation is going to be very different from another person's. And so I told them, I was like, you may never have to have this operation on your uh, abdomen. He calls it my tummy troubles. I said, you know, that's not actually going to happen in you. I said, it's, it's quite likely at some point we're going to have to fix your neck, referring to the parathyroids, but literally everything else is um, sort of up in the air. And, and I'll be honest, there's two ways of looking at that too. Some patients look at that and they're like, gosh, that gives me such uncertainty. Um, on the other hand, I, I see far too many people assume it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And, you know, my dad died when he was 49, but I know that that's not necessarily, you know, my lot. Um, uh, so it's, it's a very fascinating um, disease. And, and again, very different in that respect from MEN2, which we can talk about as well. Mark, I feel we've subjected your personal life now under the microscope quite intensely. Okay. Let's, let's, right. let's pause briefly, come back in a moment, and put our clinical focus on. Certainly. All right, thanks, Mark. Look, can you give us just some background information about how common MEN uh, is? Uh, the different kind of strands as well as the subtypes and everything? Yes, yeah, exactly. So... 
one of the things to realize is, you know, how these syndromes came about historically, and you know, traditionally they had eponyms associated with them. And I, as a general rule, I'm not a fan of eponyms because they're not descriptive and they don't really tell you anything about the disease, right? So um, we'll talk about MEN1 and then MEN2. And having just said that, I'm going to contradict myself and say that I, I actually find the nomenclature a little bit unfortunate because they're very, very different conditions and how they affect patients. And yet they sound so similar and they're very easily confused even by physicians. So we'll start with MEN1. The, um, the incidence, and this is going to vary globally, there are particular kind of hotspots in say Scandinavia and Italy, but probably the incidence is something around one in 30,000 or even one in 50,000. So it definitely qualifies as rare. Um, and it's usually um, sort of identified or at least memorized in medical school by the three Ps. That's the easy mnemonic. Uh, all organs neatly arranged in the midline. So the pituitary gland, the parathyroid and, and the pancreas. And as I mentioned, the hyperparathyroidism is far and away the most penetrant such that sometimes people come to me in their 60s and they'll say, do I have MEN1? And they don't want formal mutation testing. And the very easy litmus test is, do they have hyperparathyroidism or not? And if you've got to you know, your seventh decade and you don't have it, you almost certainly don't have uh, MEN1. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, there is no genotype-phenotype correlation that we know of. So we're interested here in a particular locus in the long, long arm of chromosome 11. Uh, and as of this recording, there's more than a thousand mutations uh, in that locus that can lead to the MEN1 um, phenotype. Um, uh, and my specific mutation actually wasn't even described uh, before 2007. Uh, a, a Swedish database contributed a single patient huh. with my kindred mutation to the testing index. And that's what allowed me to quote test positive. I often blame myself for not having seen like kind of the pattern sooner. But in truth, if I had gone and gotten tested even two years before I actually did, I would have been told I tested negative. And that's the problem is we just, we don't know what we don't know. Um, the current estimate is that our mutational testing is roughly 90% sensitive for the syndrome. But again, the denominator there, if you think about it, is, is really unknown. Um, so that, that's one thing that's particularly challenging. Um, now to shift to MEN2, um, here you're, you're talking about a completely different chromosome, the incidence is very, very similar, um, uh, but the genotype-phenotype correlation is, is, is incredibly strong, so much so that depending on the exon that's mutated in the, now that we're in the RET gene, um, some, some patients you know will actually develop very, very aggressive medullary thyroid cancer in infancy. And this is, this is where I, I cannot empathize, but I can sympathize with parents of MEN2-affected children because you know, to be told that your child is going to develop mentally thyroid cancer unless they have their thyroid gland removed in their first year of life. And that's, that's a, a terrible thing to have to confront. And yet we have that kind of predictive uh, ability uh, with certain um, exons and codons um, in, in the RET gene. Um, and again, the incidence here is probably something like one in 35,000, um, but it has a different phenotype altogether than MEN1. This is where I'm a little bit um, I think it's just a little bit unfortunate their names so similarly. Mm. So the hyperparathyroidism, as it turns out, is actually sort of the where the, the Venn diagram, where the overlap would be. Um, but as again, as I mentioned, there's this horrific predilection for very aggressive medullary thyroid cancer. And so there you're going to see um, you know, high calcitonin levels and overproliferation of the C cells in the thyroid gland. 
Um, and then finally, um, uh, pheochromocytoma is, is a part of the part of the phenotype, which is crucial to know because, uh, as you can imagine, you can get horrific perioperative complications if you do go operating on the thyroid gland and you don't understand that there's this tendency for catecholamine excess. So MEN2 and MEN2A is what I've just described, looks very, very different MEN1. And then finally, MEN2B, not to complicate the matter, and sometimes confusingly known as MEN3, um, actually has a, a very classic um, visual phenotype um, where the patients have a, a morphinoid habitus here in the U.S., there's actually a really interesting um, theory that uh, Abraham Lincoln might have had MEN2B. Um, I'm personally a little bit skeptical because, you know, he survived to be assassinated, of course, but he never developed the best frontal medullary thyroid cancer. So I, I don't know if I believe that. But regardless, people will point to historical pictures of him where he's got these very classic uh, sort of gingival lesions. Um, apparently around his, around his mouth. So, so frankly, dentists are sometimes the ones that are astute enough to pick up the phenotype of MEN2B. And then finally, not to muddy the waters, but it bears mention, we know that there are some people that have an MEN1-like phenotype, but again, they go through all the very rigorous testing and the MEN1 gene comes back, quote unquote, clean. Now, either that's a, a false negative or we're looking in the wrong place altogether. So we've realized in about the last decade, there's another syndrome out there, uh, which now has the moniker MEN4. For a while, it was called MENX. It was essentially uh, almost an umbrella term, again, for MEN1-like syndromes with a negative gene testing. And it turns out some of those patients have a mutation in a completely different locus, again, which is CDKN1B, um, so the cyclin-dependent kinase, uh, or one of them. And um, again, they, they look more like MEN1 than they do like MEN2. And the reason I bring that up is some patients end up in a real diagnostic quandary where they have some features that are compelling, but then they go and get mutation testing and they're negative. And it's very, very off-putting because they, again, struggle with, well, is the test perfectly sensitive uh, and perfectly able to, to detect the, the syndrome? And the answer is no. Uh, and I think MEN4 is actually a perfect example of years and years going by where some patients were being told, no, you don't have Mm. any any syndrome and in fact in fact they did so here's the challenge for doctors and particularly gps medical students i remember going through medical school and coming across MEN and going how do you put together yeah. these symptoms to you know to recognize because as you said it is a rare you know that that statement you know if you hear hoof beats you you look for horses and the problem is yeah. we're talking about zebras here yes and so <laughs> so how do we recognize what is the what's probably the key for doctors who generally you know someone's walking in you you're not the oncologist who's actually dealing with this having gone through all the steps what's the right. key for 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 people in the general community general practitioners to sort yeah. of be aware of yeah no very well very well said um so i, I think there's probably uh, two keys uh the first actually being taking a a, a good family history um and i don't know if this word has uh metastasized to Australia, but the one I hate to see in the U.S. medical records, you'll see family history, colon, non-contributory. And frankly, this goes beyond oncology. I mean, unless you're dealing with a hyperacute event, like someone's having an ST elevation MI, it is seldom the case that their family history is non-contributory. And, and there again, you know, it, it, the responsibility to provide that history, I hate to see the onus falls on the patient, but it is on both sides of the exam room table. So the physician has to ask, 
and, and actually be pretty, I think, probing in terms of detail. So for instance, as was already mentioned, really that the key clue in my dad's case was the high calcium because no one really correctly identified what was happening with his neuroendocrine tumor. And even if they had, it didn't fit the classic three P's mnemonic. So I actually am pretty um, insistent, especially with my trainees, that you be very meticulous when you take your family history. And then when it comes to cancer, you really, again, have to kind of push. I, I find it's a very, very common here. Um, you know, I'll ask a patient about their relatives and they'll say, oh gosh, I had this one, you know, uncle and he was so unfortunate because he had, um, he had colon cancer and he also had liver cancer. And I'll be like, well, hold on a second. Is it possible it was colon cancer that went to the liver? Um, you know, that kind of thing. So I, I, that's probably the first thing. And then the second thing is, again, because there are features of both MEN1 and MEN2 that are so incredibly penetrant, that the family history will then lead you into identifying kindreds. So as I've mentioned, the, the, the big red flag for MEN1 is consecutive generations with hyperparathyroidism. And if you want to get really granular about it, we're talking multi-gland hyperparathyroidism. Now, most hyperparathyroidism out there is, of course, just one gland going uh, awry. Um, but if you've, got, if you've got two generations in a row with high calcium, I really think that that's a, a massive um, sort of reason to think about MEN1. And then with MEN2, of course, the medullary thyroid cancer, Again, if you dig in enough and you find out, well, gosh, this wasn't your run-of-the-mill, say, papillary thyroid cancer. This was a, a medullary thyroid cancer, especially with a young onset. I think that's the, 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 the reason to dig in and think about MEN2. Now, just finally, can I ask patients who have been diagnosed with this, what is there available for them? Is there any... Uh you know, further information or is there support networks? It's such a, again, when you go into the rare area, it's such a bit of a challenge. So is there anything that you could advise out there? Yeah. So you mentioned the zebras, right? Yeah. So one of the things that's fascinating is, you know, my story and my dad and granddad before me, the notion of there being this long period of time before the correct diagnosis is absolutely uh, not unique to our family and incredibly common when you dig into the history of neuroendocrine tumors. So one estimate, and of course this is going to vary, is that most patients with these tumors go between seven and 10 years from time of symptom onset to being correctly labeled. And what I'm getting at is in the interim, they know something's wrong with them. They might go to their very well-meaning GP who's likely only going to encounter neuroendocrine tumors, you know, maybe a few times a year, or maybe an MEN syndrome a couple times their career. Um, and if they don't get the right label, but they have this persistent sense that something is off, um, they tend to self-advocate and they tend to do their own research. Now, we all know that the internet um, is, uh, it can lead you astray. Uh, however, there is a lot of really, really good information. It tends to be curated uh, by other patients who have already been through the experience. So, I wouldn't recommend any particular one group to uh, your audience, but I will say that just looking for neuroendocrine support groups, which frankly during COVID have, have flourished even more online than they used to be in person, um, is, is a good thing to do. And you know, good information tends to bubble to the top, especially on social media platforms. And there's very, very active uh, conversation among neuroendocrine tumor patients and advocates uh, online. And so I know it sounds crazy, but in the last decade or so, I've actually um, come to use Twitter as a tool to curate my own um, information. Because again, there's there's 200,000 something 
articles about cancer come out every year. No one can digest the entire peer-reviewed literature. So I look to others to see what they think is important. And again, if I see the same article and the same signal getting boosted again and again, then I know it's probably worth my time. So I know that sounds like a very odd answer to your question, but I, uh, it's one of the reasons I love net patients so much is they're, they are incredibly savvy. Most of the time when they come to me, um, I, there's very little actually at that point that, that I'm teaching them. And then finally, just to point out the therapeutic landscape, you know, I can't help but think of my dad. You know, my dad got very indiscriminate toxicity from a huge operation, um, fairly primitive radiation, and then very nasty chemo in the late 80s, early 90s. And now, just in the last, gosh, well, certainly since 2009, um, there have just been you know, therapeutic advances after therapeutic advances for this field, um, largely um, honing in on the tumors themselves and trying to leave the, the patient, the host alone. So we're really making progress now at a very rapid rate. I think finally, neuroendocrine tumors kind of um, caught the attention um, of researchers and also, frankly, the public eye, both Steve Jobs and Aretha Franklin died from neuroendocrine tumors, not that we know of from MEN syndromes, but from NETS. And I know it sounds strange, a celebrity, mm -hmm. that one life would generate that kind of interest. But, you know, with those two, I, I really think it has. Mark, you did make reference to Twitter just before. Uh, I do see you and Travis uh, on Twitter. Uh, we'll put a link to these things in the show notes. But what is your Twitter handle? Yeah, it's, it's extremely creative. It's Mark Lewis MD, so M A R K L E W I S M D. And one of my favorite communities on there is the neuroendocrine tumor patients. And I think um, your audience might really enjoy engaging with them. And do you tweet in a Scottish accent? <laughs> Someone actually said that when they read their tweets, they think of they think of the brogue, which I thought was wonderful. I, I guess anytime we read something, I guess we are kind of uh, repeating it in, in our head and our own voice. Dr. Mark Lewis. Thanks for taking some time out to chat with us and to help keep making this pathological life such a, a rich resource. It's absolutely wonderful. Really enjoyed the conversation and I hope your listeners get something out of it. This Pathological Life is produced by ClinPath Pathology in South Australia. Episode notes, references and learning objectives when applicable can be found at thispathologicallife.com.au. And you can contact the hosts on Twitter via at Dr. Travis Brown or at Steve Davis. Thanks again for listening. And just a reminder, if you haven't done it yet, have a quick search in your podcast app for our second series, This Medical Life. Dr. Travis Brown has rolled up some extra guests, some extra topics, and we continue the story there, and we'd love to have you along.